Right. Good morning again. We, um, I know we've got some guests this morning. Just so you know, we preach through books of the Bible. We preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we're currently in 1 John this morning. We're in 1 John, and, and uh, we're continuing with a little mini-series, you could call it, um, on the 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And sometimes, as we go through, these just naturally break themselves out into multi-part discussions. But as we closed out last week, you'll recall, I hope, that we anchored on this great promise of salvation uh, that comes to sinners like us, and it comes by the person and work of Jesus Christ. The focus last week was on sin. Always a fun topic in today's age. People love sermons on sin and hell. It's, it's amazing how many people are just asking for that stuff. Um, but we did. We spent an entire sermon on sin, its nature, and its origin. And there's a reason for that, of course. Because without an understanding of sin, there's actually no understanding of the gospel. There's no understanding of the good news if we don't understand the very bad news of our current condition and where we are headed without the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's so important because what we see in that is that God had a plan from the beginning. He had a plan to redeem humanity, those who will believe. And He executed that plan perfectly and He sent His Son. And we are so privileged to live in this time that we live because it's all been revealed already. He sent the eternal Son of God. We know because He realized, revealed it so clearly in Matthew 1.21. He sent His Son because He said, for He will save His people from their sins. Not He might. Not we hope He accomplishes this, but He is coming because He will save His people from their sins. Now, as I said, a discussion of sin is not popular. But when we think of sin as a violation of God's law, we have to jump back a little bit and say, we can understand this because we know God. Because God has revealed who He is in His Word, and we know Him as perfectly holy and just. And He is love. He is merciful. And we're thankful for that mercy. But the thing we must always keep in our minds, especially as we go through 1 John and these calls to righteousness and obedience, is that His law, which is reflected on every page of the Bible, is not made up of some arbitrary rules that he created. His law is a reflection of his very nature, of, of who God is. If they were just made up things, if they were just rules like we come up with for our kids, and we know that we all do this, we'll change our rules from time to time. Well, you can only watch TV until this time, and then usually for parents' convenience, actually... Can you just make them watch TV to keep them quiet, right? So we change our rules all the time. They don't reflect who we are. They might reflect our values. But with God, that's not how His law works. Every, every moral standard, everything that He has given us, they reflect His nature, His very being. And so when we're called to obedience, what it is calling us toward is to honor and glorify God, who He actually is, and to reflect that in our lives as we are progressively moving in the direction of being conformed to the image of His Son. Now, we did close with the promise last week. That promise came at the end of one of those lengthy warning passages, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. We're not going to turn there. Worry. But it does warn us, like so many other places in the Bible, that to die in unrepentant sin, and it lists many, is to die condemned for your sin. But then it ends with this great promise, and it's a promise that it forms the title of this sermon itself. In verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it begins, and such were some of you. It's those who believe. You, you used to be this way. Such were some of you. All believers recognize this. They weren't born believers. They weren't born with perfection. And it's always amazing to us. And one of these men in history, John Newton, is a name that you no doubt know. He was certainly someone who recognized this about his own life. John Newton was a, a terribly depraved sinner. And we'll leave it at that because there's parts of his life that wouldn't be fitting for a sermon. But you'll know that he piloted a slave ship 
He was involved in the slave trade for a period of time. And it took near death in a storm for him to come back and remember the Bible he had been taught by his mother as a child and turn in repentance and faith to Christ. You know him because he wrote Amazing Grace. Most even non-Christians know the song Amazing Grace. John Newton recognized what an amazing thing it was that Christ saved him. He served as a pastor then for the rest of his life and he wrote extensively. One of the things he wrote is this. If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. We don't know the hearts of the people around us. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. That's the warnings that we get in 1 John. There are those who profess Christianity who may even come to church who ignore the warnings. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. And that is the great mystery. And only the most arrogant of us could ever look and cease to marvel at the question of, why did Jesus save me? If you believe you've done something to earn it, you need some deeper self-reflection. We have this great question. Why us? Why would He save us? Why would we be there when our appointed time on this earth comes to an end? It's certainly not because of how good we are or anything that we've done. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 tells us that. We know the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23. And that death is eternal. And yet there are those that God has reconciled to Himself. And that's what brings us back to this great ending to that warning passage in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And we'll see in our passage this morning, that is true because the eternal Son of God came in order to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. It's 1 John 3, 5, and 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we turn to your word this morning, we pray for the work of your spirit to illuminate this text, to guide this teaching, to to prevent any misspeaking, to, to guide our hearts and our minds to embrace these wonderful truths about the work of your son. Lord, we pray that we'll put them to work in our lives and proclaim them boldly to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we turn back to this passage, let's just remind ourselves, we are in what's called the moral test, one of three tests in John. It's also referred to as the test of obedience. But the thing that I want to remind everybody is it's not a call to do things in obedience to Christ to earn our salvation. There there is no such sentiment in 1 John. What this test of obedience is, this moral test, is it is a way, one of the ways, that we can see the saving work of Jesus Christ in the lives of very imperfect Christians like us. Because we see in their lives that they're characterized by repentance, right, from sin, always turning away from sin, always grieving over our sin, and turning from it and towards obedience. And then we see this by their righteousness, doing what is right from God's perspective, not ours. He defines what righteousness is. So I'll remind you, this is laid out, and this is the reason we're considering this in a two parts, by the way. This is the second and only uh, part of this series. He lays this out in parallel in this passage. He starts with the nature and origin of sin, which we covered last week, verses 4 and 8. The work of Christ to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil, verses 5 and 8. The fact that anyone who is a true believer, who is saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ, cannot live a life of sin, cannot habitually sin, verses 6 and 9. And then the identity of every human being as either a child of God or a child of the devil, and that is easy to see based on the evidence that shows up in their righteousness or their lack thereof, and that is verses 7 and 10. So let's Read the passage this morning with that in mind. Starting in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I'll just point out so I won't leave you wondering at the end. We won't cover that last clause because that is the lead into the next section. But last week, as we said, we focused on the nature and origin of sin. But one of the things we focused on was this grave danger that Christians fall into of minimizing their sinful habits or thinking that God will overlook their pattern of sin. And that takes us and causes us to fall right in this trap that's always there for us. Proverbs 16.25 warns that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We can always justify what the right way is in our mind, but it does not lead to worship and glory of our God. It seems to be our natural condition to think that we can determine our own way even while the entirety of Scripture testifies over and over again that we cannot. That God has revealed only one way. He has revealed our condition, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Psalm 1.5 tells us in no uncertain terms that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And Psalm 5.4 makes it crystal clear that sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Now, I point all of that out because while God does make clear in His Word that not all sins are equal, there is a hierarchy and there is greater gravity for certain sins, but all sins, if not atoned for, do lead to eternal damnation. And so we're left wondering, well then, what can happen? What can be done to remove this curse of death, this curse for our sin? If we continued in Romans 3.23, we would see that. You know, it starts that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but then we would read, if we continued in verse 24, that believers are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And that makes God both both just, we know he's perfectly just, and the justifier, which you see in verse 26. He's just because he has to punish sin. It cannot be in his presence at all. But he is the justifier because he sent the only way that we can be forgiven and deemed righteous. He is the justifier because he sent the eternal son to take on human flesh. Jesus then lived a perfectly obedient life and he bore our penalty for sin on the cross in our place, so that we can be saved. That's all throughout Scripture. But we return again to our predicament. How do we get out of this? We know we're sinners, but God. We know we have nothing to offer for our sin. We owe the penalty. But God. That famous two-word statement. But God. Ephesians 2, 3 and 5. We all, every one of us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, right? You get that. We have nothing to do. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this is actually where John is taking us. In verse 5 and verse 8 in our passage, he says, You know that he, speaking of Jesus, that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We're going to take these in reverse order. So let me say of verse 8 that he came to destroy the works of the devil that we looked at a lengthy list of works of the devil last week. So 
We won't dwell on this one here, but let me just quote one commentator who's got a very quick way of saying it. These include instigating sin and rebellion, so tempting us, right? Tempting believers. Inspiring unbiblical ideologies. See the devil at work in that? Ever heard of cultural Marxism? Have you ever heard of critical race theory, critical theory, intersectionality? All of these worldly ideas that do nothing but divide culture, and yet he inspires these and we see churches grasping on to how can we be relevant and create our own way. The devil's work inspiring unbiblical ideologies. False religions, persecuting and accusing believers. Thankfully, we don't see a lot of that yet here, but we see it around the world. Instigating the work of false teachers and wielding the power of death. Now, it is inconceivable for a true believer, one who abides in Christ, one who is a child of God now, as John says, to again submit to the slavery of sin and the works of the devil. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's this great thing. When we are reunited with Christ through our faith in Him, we get to surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually have the power to resist the works of the devil, to resist temptation. We see that in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, right? That was God's great affirmation that His substitutionary sacrifice was accepted and valid on behalf of His people, but it was also the great sign that He had defeated Satan. He had defeated death, the greatest of all threats. The devil's still active, though. Right? We have this power to defeat him. He's not, he has no dominion over God's children, but he is active. And all believers have to realize that while we are in Christ and He is the victorious King, we cannot be complacent. We are called upon to know what's going on around us. And we are called upon to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness and purity and obedience to the very Word of God. But we can't be naive. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 10 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You can't bury your head in the sand. That's comfortable. But we are to be sober-minded and we are to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And listen, it calls us then to action. It does not leave us saying, okay, I'll, I'll go kind of hide away. No, the next verse calls us to action. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The works of the devil have been destroyed. But we also are called upon to resist. Now I want to turn back to verse 5. Right? Verse 5, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Right? We, we can too quickly gloss over this because our natural tendency is to jump right to the cross. And, and I don't want to downplay that. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. That is the gospel. We could do nothing to save ourselves and yet He went to the cross and He suffered and died for our sins. But what John is pointing out here is forgiveness is one side of a two-sided coin. Forgiveness deals with the punishment for our lawlessness, right? It deals with the punishment for our sins, our violation of God's moral decrees. And that's what we call justification. And we are justified, saved by Christ who satisfied God's judgment on our behalf. That's that notion of propitiation that you see, right? He propitiated God's wrath on our behalf. But the other side of the coin of Jesus' work is dealing with righteousness. Or our lack of righteousness, right? That takes you back to when I read Psalm 1-5. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. That's a problem because we're sinners. Forgiven sinners. But sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. And this is why that last part of verse 5 in 1 John 3 is so critical. In Him, in Jesus, there is no sin. There is no sin. We do have to be forgiven of our sins, 
by his substitutionary work on the cross to be forgiven, right? That, that removes our stain of guilt. But to be in the presence of the holy God, we must fulfill his law perfectly. You can't stand in his presence without perfectly obeying him. And the problem is, we don't. And the bigger problem is, we can't. We can't do that. We know that. But God, right? But God. God sent the eternal Son. And He took on a human nature, and He was revealed to us, and He lived as a man, just like us. And so, even though Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and that He upholds the universe by the word of His power, so powerful is He, Hebrews 1.3, as a man, in that human nature, He was just like us. Suffering every weakness that we have. He slept, he got hungry, he got tired. He was not born with sin though. That's where he's different. He was not born with sin and he did not commit sin. But in his life, he had to fulfill the law of God perfectly. Perfectly righteous. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, because he was just like us, right? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I would say tempted as we are, except worse, because he actually had the power to rid himself of evil. And we don't. You have to stand, and this is the beautiful thing, as Christ is your substitute. You have to stand cloaked in the righteousness of Christ as your Savior. He achieved that as our substitute. And not just our justification, not just our forgiveness, but actually the requirement of righteousness. His obedience satisfied that, that demand of God placed on all His creation. And that righteousness is imputed to all those who believe in Him. When Christ looks upon, or when God looks upon you, He does not see you in your sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Christ who shed His blood. For you. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says this For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of our sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a beautiful thing. That is why we always say the person and work of Christ is complete. It is finished. There is nothing you can add. He satisfied the law and the requirement for righteousness. He paid the penalty for your sins. When John talks about Jesus coming to take away the sins, the world, he's talking about both the guilt of our sins and the problem that they exist in the first place. That they represent unholiness. That they represent unrighteousness. A failure to follow God's law, His commands. But God provided the means to justification, and He provides the, both the call and the means towards sanctification. Right? Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And I would say in your Bibles, you could underline the very next word, and. Right? Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We are called to repentance and faith in Christ. But we can't stand and say that we have grasped onto Jesus' substitutionary work for us on that cross. That, that we want to live in His obedience. Obedience that required His humiliation to live as a man. And obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Philippians 2.8 says. We can't say that we claim that. That we've placed our entire faith in the person and work of the Son of God, so we're forgiven, we're saved, God sees His righteousness in us, if we continue to deny Him and live in a pattern of sin. That is what John is saying. His work was to remove lawlessness, to purify a people for Himself. And our God calls not only for repentance and faith, He also calls that we be holy in all our conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. The fact that Jesus came and as a result of that substitutionary atonement on the cross, for all who believe in Him, He didn't just satisfy the wrath of God. 
and secure forgiveness of sins, though he did that. But he took away that stain of sin completely. That is a beautiful thing. Ephesians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, not ours. Here again you see that to be in Christ is to be a child of God. As John said, it is to be a child of God now, not sometime in the future, but right now. And that is a call to a life that grows in knowledge of Him, that is focused on His Word, that loves it, that wants to know more and wants to obey and please and honor and glorify our Heavenly Father. And that is a process we generally refer to as sanctification, right? Sanctification doesn't happen overnight. It's this ongoing work. It's cooperation with the Holy Spirit in us. And it's, it's the outpouring of the new hearts that we have been given in Christ. It, it convicts us of our sin. It drives us towards obedience, though we fail daily. And so many places in Scripture reiterate this, but I just want to read one. Colossians 3, 5-10. through 10. And again, notice the call to action on our parts. We do not get to sit back and live in sin and hope that something magically changes. Put to death, right? That is a call to action. You are called to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. How hard is that one today for people? Obscene talk from your mouth must be put away. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is telling us you have to turn from your sins. A person who makes a claim to be a Christian, to claims to be a child of God, while living a life of sin and rebellion and standing in opposition to Him, is making a claim that is absolutely meaningless. It might mean something to people, but it doesn't mean anything to God. And that's why we read in 1 John 3, verse 6, No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Verse 9, parrots this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. So what is John suggesting here? Is he suggesting that we can be perfect? Sinless perfectionism? That we can somehow never sin? That was actually the great theological divide, or one of them, between John Wesley and George Whitfield during the Great Awakening of the 18th century. Wesley going on to be handed the reins to Methodism. Now, Wesley believed that one could be completely sanctified in this life. The way he describes it is, the love of God would so overwhelm your heart that it would prevent any room for even the slightest evil thought to creep in. And he called that reaching sinless perfection. But it's kind of fun to read about because even he admitted he never saw it in his lifetime. And the really fun part is he did a whole bunch of interviews with people who, listening to his preaching, thought that they had reached it. And so he interviewed them about their sinless perfection and discovered, as you might imagine, that pretty rapidly you realize, well, actually, they might have a little bit of pride going on here. They might have just a tiny bit, right? Uh, that they've reached sinless perfection, and, and nobody ever does. We know that that's not what John is telling us here anyway. 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.9 goes on and says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So John has already laid out a mechanism that reflects the daily life of a Christian, this daily conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit and this need for repentance, we're progressively sanctified. We're never fully sanctified in this life. That will come in the life to come. John's not being contradictory here. We know that Christians sin. I hope everybody knows that. 
Christians sin, pastors sin, some Christians sin grievously, spend some time in a prison ministry, and you will see that. It happens. But what John is tying all of this back to is being a child of God or being a child of Satan. And we remember always as we're reading 1 John that he wrote this letter so that you can determine whether or not you truly believe. And he is time and again repeatedly making it crystal clear that some verbal or emotional profession of faith that is separated from God's revelation of who he is and what his character is and his word and separated from a life that evidences some changed heart is actually no true faith at all. It's just words. This is echoed throughout Scripture, right? This is no different than I can point at a tree all year long and I can tell you that is a peach tree. But when summer comes and apples start to grow on it, you're going to know that that's not a peach tree. It's an apple tree. The fruit reflects the very nature of what's in that tree. And that's the very thing that Jesus warns of, right? Matthew 7.20, he says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And that is exactly what John is getting at here. You will see the evidence of whether or not somebody is a child of God by the fruit of their life. He's not preaching perfectionism. A believer, a true Christian, can fall into error. There's no question about that. You see it throughout history. You see that even among some of the greats. They can fall into error for a time. But those same people must be open to correction. God has created means for this, right? Discipleship among brothers and sisters in Christ. He has given us structures of the church. He has called teachers and pastors and overseers. And all of these people are designed to call us back into repentance and faith. And to deny that, to have a lack of humility, to not be able to listen to anybody, including God's Word, and go on in error should cause great concern. It doesn't because usually if somebody is committed to that, they're already denying God's Word. But it should cause concern for us to want to reach them. Because to go on that path, living contrary to God's Word, living in opposition to God Himself, is to evidence, as John says, that you don't know Jesus. And Jesus doesn't know you. He's not your Savior. The, the logical entailment of all of this is that a child of God will live a holy life. Not perfectly holy, but seeking to obey God. Seeking to stand for God. Bearing the consequences in this life that come with that. And for some people, that's been martyrdom. For others, it's just not being able to do some of the things we'd like to do. Or being scorned or getting whatever the popular thing is on social media. I don't know if it's still dislikes, but that was what I've known. This message, John's actually using this negative. He's going to come back to this child of God concept repeatedly as we come to the end, but here he's using a negative evidence. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. To be born of God, it's that most beautiful, almost inexplicable, it's hard to understand, act of God in our hearts the gift of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration that takes place. And we looked at that a bit last week when we looked at John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. For time, I'm not going to read it again this morning. But you can turn there and you'll see that concept repeated in 1 Peter and elsewhere. It's not an optional add-on. John refers to this multiple times, to be born of God. It's not an optional add-on for super-Christians. There's no such category. Or the super-religious, also no such category. You're either a child of God or you're not. And it's the hallmark of every Christian that they have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. All true disciples of Jesus Christ are saved not by their own works. Couldn't be more clear in Scripture. Saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone based solely on God's work. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty. The Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. God saved you. You didn't save yourself. John notes that the Christian life is one of rejecting sin. We're going to come back to that first concept there in a minute. But of repenting of sin, of acts of disobedience, all of this he says, right, is because God's seed abides in you as the believer. You can't keep sinning because you've been born of God. Verse 9. So do you see this pattern in John? What he's saying is, if you have been born of God, 
It is actually impossible for you to live a life in complete opposition to Him. You can't have those two things. It's not possible to abide in Christ, to believe in God, to truly know Him and His nature, and then tell the world that you stand for and you love what God hates. That you stand for and support what God calls sin. Because as we covered at the opening, those aren't arbitrary standards. That is who God is. Those rules, those moral standards, they just reflect His perfection. So to stand against that is to stand against who God is. It's why you will hear people say, you may hear me say, when someone says, well, I love God, and some nebulous concept they've created, and the reality is, no, you don't. You hate God, the one true God. Because you stand in opposition not to something arbitrary, but actually to his very nature and character. And that is what John is telling us here. You cannot shake your fist at God and demand that he change because culture changed and the world changed and we know more today. And You can't do that because God does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 The same God with the same nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were there at creation. They were there executing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah together. God was there as the Son hung on the cross, dying, suffering, bleeding. As the Son died, the Father poured out His wrath on the Son. This is the same God, same nature, Old Testament to New. To be born again is to have the seed of that God, the only God, the living God, planted in your heart, growing and blossoming in your life as a child of God. And that transformation should be evidence to everybody who knows you, who works side by side with you, especially your spouse, because you're different. And they should recognize that you're different. You're set apart. You're called to be holy, for He is holy. Right? 1 Peter 1, 22-25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and the, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our Lord remains forever." And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We always ask ourselves, we test ourselves, is the imperishable seed of God in you? Have you been born of God? Do you know His Son? Do you live according to His truth? Do you long to please Him? The transformation that we speak of, this new life, it doesn't leave us on our own, incapable of things. It it provides us with clarity. So that we can see these things. 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who has understood the mind of the Lord to instruct Him? Nobody. Except we have the mind of Christ. Not the exact mind, but a mind open to understanding His Word. To knowing right and wrong. This new life, it liberates us from our bondage to sin, our slavery to sin, our submission to the devil and his works. Right? That's where we started. Jesus came to remove sin and destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, 13-15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And for that, we are free, right? Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's telling us if you believe in Christ, if you've been born of God, you're new creations. You're, You're living for Him. You're no longer slaves to sin. But you are slaves to righteousness, to God, His child, paid for at a price, a costly price. 2 Corinthians 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does that look like? What does that mean, the new has come? Ephesians 4, 24 gives us one glimpse. 
It says the new self, the new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, this is consistent throughout Scripture. And he's given us assurance of victory. So all of this to say, when things don't go your way, at least in earthly terms, because you stand for Christ, you know you have victory in the end. Revelation 21, 7 and 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We have the assurance of victory, but there's victory only in Christ. Now, I hope as we're going through 1 John that you see that the Bible's not only clear in its teaching, but it is 100% consistent on these things. This is not just John. And that's a silly argument anyway when people do that because the Holy Spirit inspires all Scripture. It's all God-breathed. But we are told all over and over again, warned, we're encouraged, repent, believe in Christ. We're told that to die in our sins and remain unforgiven is dreadful, carries eternal consequences. And we're told not to rely on just a profession of faith, but instead, quoting Romans 12, 1 and 2, Instead, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world. It is simply inconsistent, completely incongruent to claim to be saved and in Christ and then live in habitual sin and rebellion. John reminds us time and again there's only two groups of people. There are those who are God's children, saved by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then there are those who are not the children of God, no matter what comes out of their mouth, no matter what they profess. The late James Montgomery Boyce, he says it best and shortly when he writes, one does not grow into Christianity. From the divine side, one enters into Christianity only by being born of God. On the human side, one enters it through believing on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Nothing must cloud these facts. Indeed, they must be stated in the sharpest of terms. And I would say John is stating them in the sharpest of terms throughout 1 John. There must be evidence. That is kind of his closing point. There must be evidence of this in your life. You will know whether somebody belongs to God who is saved by the evidence of their life. It's never a matter of words only. Or just this profession of faith. Because we know that. We actually do know that intuitively. Without the Bible even telling us that that is not the case. We know that because surveys up until just a year or two ago would routinely report that 70% or more of Americans ticked the box saying they were Christian. Over 70%. Now that number has dropped a little bit in the last couple years. But really? 70% in a country that murders more babies every year than anybody ever sacrificed to the god of Moloch, right? In a, in a, in a country that can no longer figure out uh, who was created man or woman, who celebrates sexual depravity of all kinds and demands the celebration, 70% are Christians? No. We know intuitively that's not. Listen to the outcome of a different survey. 7 to 9%. Not 70%, less than 1 in 10, 7 to 9% of Americans believe that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus, that the Bible is God's word, and that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Less than 1 in 10 believe that. Now I ask you again, who's saved? John is telling us, he's giving us all of these tests, and he says in verses 7 and 10, Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you, right? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. By this, in, sorry, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, one, one problem that we always run into in these passages that keep talking about righteousness is that we still de default to ourselves as the authority. Or, or our culture, or some group of people is the authority, the ultimate arbiter of what is good, right? Righteousness being, meaning good. Uh, and we think that this is calling us to our own definition, that, that our righteousness or our good is the same thing as God's righteousness and His good. 
And that we can stack up this heap of good deeds and we can present it to God as a trade-off for, for sort of disobedience or denial of Him or His Word. And, and that was the problem that Isaiah hit. This goes all the way back to the prophets, right? It's the problem Isaiah hit when he wrote in Isaiah 64.6 that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They're like a filthy rag. They're good to people, but not God. You, you see, human righteousness and God's righteousness are like two different currencies. The best analogy that I could come up with. It reminded me of this because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, as you all know. And in the Pacific Northwest, way back when I was a kid, when we still used pocket change to actually buy things, and you could buy things still for a quarter or a dime, or at least candy, that's what we always looked for. But it reminded me of the problem that you had living that close to the Canadian border. You would go buy something, a store would give you change, you'd put it in your pocket, thinking this is great, then you'd go to the store the next time and take that change out of your pocket, and that quarter that looked exactly the same, same size and everything else, just a different picture on the front, was a Canadian quarter that they had given you. And a Canadian quarter was worth exactly zero. They would not take Canadian money. So frustrating sticks with me even to this day. No, <laughs> uh, Very frustrating though. Different currencies, right? And this is essentially what people do with God. They place their hopes in this life on the complete wrong currency. He demands divine righteousness. Good is only defined by God. It is not defined by us. And he looks at the heart. He cares about the motives. Really what he demands, this divine righteousness, comes only in Christ. We can never achieve it, but we must look to Christ because He's the only one who lived in perfect obedience to God. Now, the other problem that we run into when we read these calls to righteousness over and over again is in our culture, in our Western church, we want to ignore them. We do it two ways. We shed them off as some sort of Christian legalism. Well, that's legalism. You want me to follow rules? Or works-based salvation. Both of those things are bad and wrong. I don't stand for either one of them. So what we have to do when we read these things is keep reminding ourselves what is actually being laid out for us. We are not being told to do these things to earn salvation or to earn favor with God. What we are told is that if we have transformed hearts, if we believe in Christ we love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the evidence that we will see coming out of this. It's the evidence of salvation, not working toward salvation. The life lived in obedience that we do is meant to be more like Him because ultimately it will be His obedience, not ours, that God sees when we stand in His presence. We would still be foolish, though, to ignore these warnings, these calls to obedience, they are just on page after page after page. And it's amazing how we don't heed them. This is one in 1 John, but let's close with this. Romans 2, 6-10. through 10. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. That's just the way to say everybody. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Remember when you read that, when Paul uses the term good in that passage, he is referring to only one thing. And that is good as determined by God's law, by the entirety of Scripture and nothing else. If God shows any partiality, He shows it to one man. He shows it to His eternal Son, who took on a human nature and was Jesus. That is to whom He shows partiality. None of us. It doesn't matter where we were born or who our parents were or what we did as kids. None of that matters. He shows partiality to His Son. It was by sending His Son that He saved us. It was by the life and the work of Jesus that we can be accounted righteous. It was by 
His death on the cross that we can be forgiven of sins because He paid the penalty for us. God poured out His love and His grace and His mercy upon sinners like us, and that should blow our mind. It should drive us to our knees because all He calls for us is to repent, to turn away from sin, to live in accordance with His nature. And for that, we're not only saved for all eternity, but we really do live a blessed life. Maybe not by human standards, but we are blessed with a family around us that comes alongside us, support us, that we can serve to reflect Christ. And we're birthed by the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus Christ alone. And we're family. We're part of His church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is impossible to do justice to the, the magnificent work that began with creation and ends with consummation in the new heavens and the new earth and falls right there in the middle, the sending of your Son. Lord, it is beyond our comprehension to imagine the eternal Son being humiliated enough to take on human flesh, to live as Christ, to suffer like we would never suffer in our lives and yet to do it obediently and to do it out of love for a people that He will save. God, let us revel in that majesty, that Your mercies are greater than we can comprehend, that Your love is bigger than we can comprehend, and that Your holiness is purer than we could ever imagine. Father, keep us from being deceived. You warn us time and again not to deceive ourselves, or to be deceived by the world around us. Lord, we pray for your guidance and your wisdom. We pray that we will know your truth. Give us a heart for your truth. Give us a heart for your word. Give us a heart for those around us that we might reach with the saving grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.